Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another live episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. I'm going to be doing another live Q&A immediately following this podcast. Hard to say exactly how long the podcast is going to last, but pretty much as soon as I wrap this, I'm going to be taking your questions live at shiftradio.com premium. That is the locals uh, channel that I have. You can sign up for it again on the shift radio website, shiftradio.com premium. You can ask me questions. Uh, These Q&As seem to take an hour, hour and a half, uh, so I keep going for a while. It really is an expansion on the podcast, but people ask a lot of questions that have nothing to do with the most recent podcast, and I do my best to to answer them. Anyway, starting off today's podcast, I want to talk a little bit about the markets. I think the markets are setting up for a decline, the Dow down about 200 and 30 points today. And that's despite a seven or 8% rise in Microsoft. That was the biggest mover in the Dow. It rose as a result of better than expected earnings. I think Meta's having a pretty good night, not nearly that good, but it had better than expected earnings. But despite that big jump in Microsoft, you had the decline in the Dow. The financials, again, are leading the way lower which is not a healthy sign for the market or the economy, given that we are basically a credit-based bubble economy. Well, the banks that have been providing that credit are getting clobbered. The regional bank index hit a new 52-week low today, although it did manage to close positive, uh, maybe about a half a percent or so. I wouldn't get excited about that. It's not any kind of significant reversal. Uh, The trend is clearly down for these regional banks. The index is now down about 40% off its highs. Also significantly, um, you had Republic Bank, which is now kind of the epicenter of the crisis. That bank was down another 30% today, just one day, to a new 52-week low. And it was lower on the day. At one point, it was down maybe 40%. So it closed down 30%. That's a 97% decline from its 52-week high. So, I mean, you've practically lost all your money, right? I mean, you only have another 3% to go. Of course, if you bought it here, if you buy the stock now and it loses that last 3%, meaning it goes to zero, 
you don't lose 3%, you lose 100%. That's why it's still very dangerous to buy, you know, these stocks that have blown up. There's a reason this stock went from, you know, 100 and whatever down to four. You know, things are pretty bad when that happens. And it very easily could complete the journey down to zero. That's why I have been avoiding the banks because I saw this train where coming from a mile away. And another example of the problem that the banks are in is their auto loans. And who do you think has been financing uh, this car buying binge that went on in the United States uh, for 10 years or so? You know, I was watching George Gammon's podcast and he brought this up and actually gave me the idea to talk about it. So I should credit George. And by the way, I'm going to plug his conference. I am going to be at his conference in Orlando. It's the weekend of April 12th. So I'm going to be down there. Uh, He's got some other really good speakers. Several of us are coming from Puerto Rico. Um, My family's coming down because, you know, they want to go to Disney World. My son, Spencer, is going to be there. So all you Bitcoin bugs uh, can meet Spencer. He's, He's not speaking at the conference, although maybe people can convince him to speak. He'll be there, though. I'm going to be there. I'll be talking. So I think there's still some time to sign up if you can go down there last minute uh, to his conference at Rebel, Rebel Capital. I forget the rep website where, you know, you Google it, you'll find it. But anyway, he was talking about these auto loans. And I've been talking about the auto loans for, you know, 10 years, the bubble there. Because when interest rates were at zero, anybody who could fog a mirror could buy a car, right? I mean, there was a lot of money uh, going into the auto market, and that drove auto sales. You know, people could get auto loans for nothing down, uh, no payments, or all kinds of gimmicks. And even if you had really bad credit, right, you're a subprime borrower, low FICO score, you could still get a loan. Right? Nobody really cared. They charge you a little bit higher interest because, you know, they, they want interest. When, when interest rates are zero, everybody is starved for yield. And so they'll, they'll, they'll take on a lot of risk in order to make these loans. These loans are now going bad. Right. As interest rates rise. But one of the bigger problems that nobody really talks about, I talked about it real time. A is the duration of these auto loans. A lot of these loans were five, six, seven year loans. You know, when I was younger, if you bought a car and you had a loan, it was maybe a three year loan. You know, you didn't know it had a five, six, eight year auto loan. Um, and, and so they were much shorter term because the problem with cars is they lose so much value. You buy a new car, you drive it off the lot down 20%, like the minute you leave the lot, cars generally lose about half their value every four years. You know, that's not excellent collateral out of load, right? When you you got a rapidly depreciating asset like a car. But another problem, in addition to these long maturities on these auto loans, what was happening during this car bubble? And I talked about it in real time. I'm not, you know, Monday morning quarterback when it comes to these auto loans. But people would go in with a car that they owned where they were already underwater on their loan, meaning they owed, let's say, $30,000 and the car was only worth 20. Right. So you got no equity in your existing car. How are you going to buy a new car? Well, what the car guys were doing is they were rolling that negative equity into the new loan. So they would allow you to take this upside down car and trade it in and they would just carry that $10,000 deficit 
and stack it on top of this new loan. So now you're actually borrowing more than the car is worth. Let's say you trade it in to a $50,000 car and you bought it with nothing down and they took the 10,000 you owed on the last car and stuck it on the new the new loan. So now you're buying you're borrowing $60,000 to buy a $50,000 car and the minute you drive it off the lot it's worth 40,000. Well, you already owe 60, you're up to down 20 grand. Well, as a lot of these loans start going into default, it's going to be huge losses for the lenders, right? And so who are the lenders? Well, a lot of them are banks, right? They've been lending out money. And these regional banks are in the most trouble because, as I said, they're seeing uh, a withdrawal of capital, cash. Uh, customers are taking their money out because they don't want to take chances that if their bank fails, it doesn't get a special bailout because it's not politically connected enough or big enough. So people are yanking their money out to play it safe and to put it into these bigger banks. And they want to get interest. These regional banks can't pay enough interest. Uh, they can't even compete with the U.S. government interest on treasuries. So they're in a lot of trouble. Their loans are going bad. Their collateral is going down. These are horrible businesses. Uh, and the fact that they're, they're falling, again, is a bad sign. So I think we are setting ourselves up for a drop in the stock market. I mean, we've been ignoring a lot of bad news. To me, it looks like we got a bit of a distribution top. You know, we had a rally. We've been kind of going sideways and we're rolling over. And I expect to see a, a break in the market. On the flip side, I think gold's going to go the other way. You know, gold closed below 2000 today. I mean, still above 1990. They can't knock it down. The gold stocks are in a bit of a correction and maybe the correction will uh, get a little bit bigger. I mean, I bought a little bit more gold stocks myself. You know, I'm very selective now. So if some stocks have cracked a little bit more, I'll, I'll, I'll buy them. And I'm hoping that we actually get a bigger pullback. I just don't think we're going to get that big a pullback. I think we'll get one. And, you know, I'm always hoping that gold stocks go down. People are, you know, why do you want them to go down? You own them. Yeah, I want to buy more. I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even close to wanting to sell. See, the only time the price of the stock matters is when you buy and when you sell. Everything else is a bunch of noise, right? In the meantime, between the buy and the sell, all that counts is your dividends, how much you're earning in dividends. But I know that gold stocks are going to be much higher in the future than they are right now. So I want the price to go down right now so I could buy more, right? If you had, you know, you had a time machine and you had the price of a stock 10 years from now and you knew how high it was going to be, you would want it to go down before then because you just want to buy more if you know where it's going to be. Well, I don't have a time machine. I don't have the newspaper from, from 10 years into the future, but I don't think I need a time machine. This is so obvious that I can see it in advance. And so I'm so convinced that these stocks are going to be much higher in the future. I want them to go down now, even though I already own a bunch, because I'm still earning money. I have to invest it somewhere. I'm not going to spend it all. And so I want to buy more of these stocks. So I think we might get more of a pullback there, but not as significant as what I'm looking for in the, the overall stock market. Next, I want to talk, though, about the debt ceiling. That was the topic, mainly, of my last podcast. I talked a lot about uh, the debt ceiling brinkmanship and all the political theater involved 
in the debt ceiling. Well, today, you know, some of the actors came out and took a bow. The Republicans actually passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. They're going to raise it by one and a half trillion dollars, which is nothing. I mean, maybe that'll buy them six months, right? I mean, because we're, the deficits are over two trillion a year. So raising it by one and a half trillion, you know, they were doing that, you know, years and years ago when we only had four or five hundred billion dollar deficits a year. When you're running deficits of over two trillion a year, a one and a half trillion dollar, uh, you know, increase in the debt limit doesn't really get you much. Now, personally, I would just assume the debt limit not go up. I, I want the ceiling left so that we could really start dealing with the debt and paying our bills instead of, you know, putting more of our unpaid bills on a credit card. Well, the Republicans have passed a debt limit ceiling increase, but the Rep Democrats in the Senate are not going to pass it. And even if the, the, the democratically controlled U.S. Senate passed it, Biden ain't going to sign it, right? So it's, it's dead on arrival. And the reason that the Democrats don't want to sign it is because they say it's heartless. They're slashing government spending. This is terrible, right? The, the Republicans are punishing America uh, with this increase. We want to just increase the debt ceiling uh, just a clean bill to increase the debt ceiling, as if that doesn't punish Americans. Who does Biden and the Democrats, who do they think is responsible for repaying all this debt? It's not like Americans avoid being punished if we don't make them pay now, if we let them pay later, because they're going to pay more later. Increasing the debt punishes the American people who are on the hook for repaying that debt. So if we really want to do the American people a solid, we should not raise the debt ceiling. We should reduce the burden of debt that we are placing on them. But Biden and his buddies in the Democratic Party want to pretend that the average American, the middle class, is getting away with something. If we just keep increasing the debt ceiling, then the average American never has to cover the cost. Like these, these bills are just going to be paid you know, by, by Santa Claus or the man in the moon. No. The American public, the middle class, are responsible for all this debt. And so the responsible thing to do is to stop adding to that burden and deal with it. But the Republicans don't even do that. Because first of all, there are no real cuts. The only cuts that are happening are in discretionary spending, right? So that, that means that all the non-discretionary stuff, Social Security, Medicare, National defense, they don't, none of the cuts apply to national defense, interest on the debt, none of that's getting cut at all. That's 70 plus percent of the budget. So if you're not going to cut 70 percent of the budget, even if you cut the other 30 percent, you're not going to make much headway. But the other 30 percent doesn't really get cut. What the Republicans are saying they want to do is limit the increase in that spending to 1 percent a year. Remember, I talked about how the government's version of a cut is you increase spending by less than you had planned on increasing it, and they call that a cut, right? Well, in reality, that's still an increase. It's just a smaller increase. Now, in a way, if you only increase discretionary spending by 1% a year, and if inflation is 6%, 7% a year, well, then in real terms, spending is being cut.
And, and that would be the case. And the people who were getting these government benefits would feel the pain of the uh, reduction in the real purchasing power of whatever money they were receiving from the government because it wouldn't keep pace with the increase in the cost of living. So in a way, yes, it's a little bit of a cut, but it's not nearly enough to get us to where we have to be. As I mentioned in my last podcast, given the fact that we have over a $2 trillion annual budget deficit, in order to balance the books so that we stop burdening Americans with even bigger debt, which they have to repay with interest. So obviously, if you have to repay your debt with interest, it's more expensive than just paying for the spending right now. So either we have to cut spending by a third, right? 33% cut in everything, which includes Social Security and Medicare and national defense. And if you're not going to cut those, then you got to pretty much abolish everything else. You have to eliminate completely the discretionary spending. If you're if you're going to take Social Security, Medicare, national defense and put them off the table, well, you just got to get rid of everything else. And I don't even think that even balances the budget. Alternatively, if you don't want to do that, you can raise taxes. It would take, I think, about a 40 percent increase in taxes to balance the budget. That's how much Americans are undertaxed relative to what the government is spending. Think about that. A 40 percent increase in every tax that you pay. So the Social Security tax would have to go up 40 percent, payroll taxes, Medicare tax up 40 percent. Your income taxes would have to go up 40 percent. That is an enormous increase. And of course, they might actually have to go up more than 40 percent, because if you raised income taxes and payroll taxes by 40 percent, you would not get 40 percent more revenue. (laughs) That would actually harm the economy. It would cause the revenue that you're taxing to go down. Incomes would go down if taxes went up that much. So in order to get an extra 40% in tax revenue, well, you might have to raise taxes by 50 or 60%. But again, that would destroy the revenue even more. I don't think it's even possible. How much they would have to raise taxes to balance the budget is so big that it can't ever work because of the economic impact uh, and the adverse consequences those higher taxes would actually have on the very thing that you're trying to tax. So most of it is going to have to come from spending cuts, but real spending cuts. But the Democrats won't even sign on to these tiny spending cuts that the Republicans are opposing, proposing. Biden and the Democrats are saying these are draconian. These are heartless. This is going to destroy America. We're not going to vote for this. Instead, we'd rather destroy America with debt rather than destroy them uh, with spending cuts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, we're talking about the Republican bill to raise the debt ceiling. Again, any raise is a mistake. It is a loss. It is bad news because it means that the government will continue not paying its bills, running up debt instead of paying its bills, 
So the national debt keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we get closer and closer to a debt crisis, which is the only way that this thing is going to come to an end. You know, we've been raising the debt ceiling now for 100 years, more than 100 years, and look what it's got us. It's got us $32 trillion of debt. Uh, None of this brinksmanship, none of these showdowns over the debt have done anything to stop uh, the the compounding of the debt because they always raise the ceiling. The only thing that would make a difference is to leave that ceiling in place. But then, of course, we accelerate all of the pain, like all the bad things, all the horrible pain that the Democrats say, you know, is going to happen if we don't raise the debt ceiling. All of that is going to happen because we are raising the debt ceiling. It's just going to happen worse. It's going to happen later but it's going to happen much worse. So we should uh, deal with it now, but we won't because even these little itsy bitsy cuts, you know, using that word lightly, that the Republicans have opposed, well, that's too much. So if the Democrats aren't even willing to do this little teeny bit, then where are we going to go? Now, it's not that there's nothing good in the Republican bill. I mean, there's, there's some stuff in there that's good. I mean, for example, they kill the student loan debt forgiveness. So that's a good thing. And, you know, that helps the debt. You know, and by the way, you know, one of the reasons that deficits have exploded is because so many people who have student loans aren't paying. And I think that maybe is it the first of the month or it's coming up real soon. But supposedly, everybody who hasn't been making their student loan payments, they got to start paying. I think it's like maybe May 1st. I, I got to look that up, but it's happening very soon. All these people who for the last two or three years haven't made any student loan payments. They haven't made any interest payments. They haven't made any principal payments. So they've been living off this extra money. Now, all of a sudden, they have to start making these payments. And that may help reduce the deficit a little bit. But what is that going to do to all these individuals, these families? They're going to lose that extra money. They're basically getting the equivalent of a tax hike. And that is going to hurt, especially considering that prices have been going up. Inflation is driving up prices. One way people were able to cover those costs was that they didn't have to make their student loan payments. Well, now they have to start making those payments so they won't have that money uh, to to pay for this more expensive stock. So that's another accident waiting to happen. Also, the Republican bill kills the extra money for the IRS. Now, supposedly, that was actually going to bring in revenue because we were going to unleash, you know, all these IRS agents like a swarm of locusts and they were going to cover the country and they were going to extract uh, new revenue that they sucked out of taxpayers. Now, of course, the government said that these locusts were just going to go for the millionaires and billionaires. Uh-uh-uh. There's no money there. They're, and, and, you know, they're already paying a lot. And then these taxes that they avoid, they, they do it legally. You know, they lo- use legal loopholes to minimize their taxes. The people who are cheating are the middle class, right? Because they, they, they can't afford these expensive lawyers. They don't qualify for these loopholes. So the only way they can survive is to cheat. You know, and I'm not, you know, going to blame somebody if the only way they can feed their family and pay their rent is if they cheat on their taxes. Well, that's what they're doing, you know. I'm not going out there and, and advising people to do that. I'm just recognizing that it happened. And small businesses, you know, you know, they're far more likely to, you know, cheat on their taxes, you know, self-employed, small businesses, 
where they you know put a lot of their personal expenses on their business you know maybe they earn some cash and of course the people that earn a lot of cash the guys in the gig economy right those guys they're not paying a lot of taxes they've got a lot of unreported income people that get tips don't report they get a really big tip they don't report that if it's cash they put it in their pockets right so this is what's going on that's who the democrats were going to target with these irs agents so but if the republicans you know cut that expense in theory they're also going to miss out on the extra tax revenue but you know to the extent that a lot of these irs agents start targeting business owners entrepreneurs that's going to hurt the economy they might end up firing a bunch of people because they're dealing uh, with these all these government tax collectors and and and, and so they may not actually get the tax revenue because if you harass small business owners and make them spend a lot of money defending themselves against government audits, well, that, you know, they don't have as much time to grow their business. You deplete them of the resources that they needed to invest in their business and to hire people. I mean, we don't want businessmen having to spend all their time fighting off the IRS. And so to the extent that these agents just added additional, you know, red tape uh, to a small business uh, owners, uh, you know, business, it, it, it would have been a net negative. So may, it might have even backfired. And maybe even uh, all these extra IRS agents would have resulted in lower tax collection, not the higher collection uh, that they were banking on uh, based on recovering all this money. The other thing that they repealed uh, is some of these uh, green energy uh uh, tax credits or whatever, some stuff, uh, Green New Deal kind of things that made it into the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, I can't help but laugh, you know, when, when I say the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, it's just such a joke because the Inflation Reduction Act was paid for by inflation. Where did the money come from to finance all the spending from the Inflation Reduction Act? It came from inflation. So the Inflation Reduction Act was itself inflationary. So a bill with the name of reducing inflation, by passing that bill, they guaranteed higher inflation. Again, government always achieves the opposite of whatever they title their legislation, which is why there should be a law, truth in legislating, because if that law were in effect, they would have to have named this bill the Inflation Acceleration Act or the Act to Increase Inflation. But if they if they labeled it what it actually did, how many congressmen are going to vote to increase inflation? Try to explain that vote to your constituents. Yeah, I voted for the Inflation Acceleration Act because we didn't think we had enough inflation, and so I voted for more. Nobody can explain that vote, but it's much easier to explain the vote to reduce inflation. Yes, of course I voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, even though the act increased inflation, that's not the name. So you can vote to increase inflation, but then take credit for voting to decrease inflation because of the fraud involved in naming the legislation. You know, it's ironic because the government wants to go after fraud in the private sector if somebody defrauds their customers, but they're totally allowed to defraud their voters because basically that's the customer, right? If you're a politician, your customers are the ones that vote for you. But you don't have to be honest with them at all. You can just tell them a pack of lies, and it's totally fine. Just like when Biden says that, oh, 
we don't want to hurt American families, so we just want a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling. Those American families are on the hook to repay that debt. You know, all of your debt, when you want to look at how much debt you have, you just can't look at your own debt. You just can't look at your mortgage or your car loan or your student loan or credit card debt. You have to look at your share of the national debt. Every American is on the hook to pay their share. And of course, you're actually on the hook to pay a lot more than your share because a big chunk of Americans don't pay any taxes at all. So if you're not paying any taxes at all, then your share is going to have to be paid for by somebody who is paying taxes. And of course, it's not just per capita because the babies aren't paying, right? If you have a two-year-old or a four-year-old, or five, they're not kicking in, right? So you got to get rid of all the little kids. It's the people that are working and paying taxes. They have a share of the national debt, and it's several hundred thousand dollars a person. It's huge. And they keep increasing this collective liability that everybody has. Now, the other piece of political news that, that came out is that President Joe Biden decided to make it official and he's going to run for a second term. I mean, after all, he's done such a great job so far in his first term, we may as well reelect him. Now, of course, you know, he's done a horrible job uh, so far. It doesn't make any sense that we would want to uh, reelect him. In fact, very few people in the president's own party want him to run again. Yet he's doing it anyway. I mean, he's he's been so incompetent in uh, in his first term. But it's funny because you know he gave his speech and he talked about all the great things he wants to do if he gets reelected. But he's already in office. Why do we have to wait for the second term? Just do all that great stuff right now. If you listen to his speech, it's like he's running against the current incumbent, right? Things are really bad right now. Vote for me and I'm going to fix it, right? He's, he's promising to, you know, revitalize manufacturing. Well, you're the president. If manufacturing needs revitalizing, why haven't you already done it, right? I mean, it's like he's running as an outsider trying to get the job from somebody who's doing a really bad job. He's saying, vote for me. I'm going to rebuild the middle class. Well, you've been in office for two years. In fact, when he ran the first time, that was the platform. Vote for me, and I'm going to rebuild the middle class. Well, how can your reelection be the same? Vote for me, and I'm going to rebuild the middle class. Well, we voted for you the first time. Didn't you already do that? I thought that's what your, your, your plan was, to rebuild the middle class. Are you telling me that you failed, but we should give you another shot? You couldn't do it in your first term? But don't worry, if we reelect you, you'll do it in your second term? I mean, basically, his whole uh, you know, campaign could be flipped around and used against him because he hasn't done anything that he promised. He's not building this economy. He's promising to create all these high-paying union jobs. I mean, first of all, I mean, you're not going to create the union jobs. The union is what's destroying the jobs. But he's promising to create all these high-paying jobs. Well, create them. You're already in office. Don't tell me what you're going to do in three years. Do it right now. Right. Stop talking about what you'll do if you get reelected. But these politicians don't even bother to think about the absurdity of what they're saying. Right. Yes. If you want to run against Biden, then you can run on a platform like that. Oh, we need we need to revitalize manufacturing. We need to create good jobs. 
we need to rebuild the middle class, right? Because you're not in office. But when you're in office, you should be doing those things, not promising to do them in the future. But of course, as a president, he can't. He can't create good paying jobs. He can't create anything. Presidents don't create, they destroy. That's all they could do. Government is power, right? The power to tax is the power to destroy, right? Thurgood Marshall, that's a very uh, famous uh, quote. Government is destructive power. It doesn't create anything. Government doesn't have any resources. It has to take resources from the private sector. It has to misappropriate them before they can reallocate them. But any um, wealth or whatever that they might create by spending money, they destroy a lot more of it um, when they take the money. You know, my father used to define it like this. He said, you know, like government, it's like trying to give yourself a blood transfusion from your left arm to your right arm, and then you spill half the blood on the floor in the process, right? That's what goes on with government. So there's nothing he could do, right? All the promises that he's making, it's impossible for him to fulfill. That's why he hasn't done it in his first term. And of course, he's not going to do it if he gets the second term. The only way a president could help create a more prosperous economy with higher paying jobs is to get out of the way and let the free market do it. Remove the barriers to economic growth and prosperity that government has already placed in the way of the free market. So we don't need new programs. We need to get rid of the programs that exist. We don't need new regulations. We need to repeal the regulations that already exist, meaning that the reason that we don't have more prosperity right now the reason that we don't have better paying jobs right now is because of government. Government has undermined our productivity. And so the only thing government can do going forward to help is to stop hurting, right? It's like the government is, is bashing us on the head. And so that hurts. And so what Biden is saying is, look, I'm just going to bash you some more, maybe, maybe someplace else. No, what the government has to do is stop hitting you, right? And that will relieve your pain. Right? But the government doesn't want to admit that they're the source of your pain in the first place. They want to pretend that it'll go away if they just hit you more. But that is not reality. But the other thing about uh, the uh, the president's reelection is, you know, there are some other people that want his job. Right. He's he's not unopposed uh, in his quest for the Democratic nomination. Remember, he needs to get the Democratic nomination. I mean, he doesn't need it. Right. He could theoretically run again even if he didn't have the Democratic nomination, but the odds of him winning, because he'd have to come up with another party. He'd have to you know, go on an independent party line or just get signatures and get on the ballot. But no, he's the head of the Democratic Party and they want Biden uh, as their standard bearer. And so what the DNC has announced is that there's not gonna be any presidential debates. So even though there are people who want Biden's job, and who can clearly do it better. In fact, just about everybody could do Biden's job better than Biden. In fact, you know, a lot of people don't like Biden because, you know, he's basically senile, which which is true. That's the one thing I like about the guy, because if he actually had more going for him, he could do even more damage. I mean, I'm glad the guy, you know, forgets a lot of things. I mean, because he could do a lot more damage if he remembered all the stuff he wants to do. I mean, just imagine how much worse Biden would be if he was actually competent enough uh, to get stuff done. The fact that he's incompetent is good because all the things he wants to do are bad. 
Uh, so that's you know probably a good selling point for him. But I mean, that's not actually going to going to win you any votes. But the the D- Democratic National uh, Party, they're not allowing any debate. You know, and it's funny because he's out there talking about we need more democracy. Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. All right. Well, how about um, uh, uh, debates? Isn't that democracy? Letting the voters have a choice, letting them hear uh, from all the candidates who also want to be president. But no, no, no. They want to shut off the debate. So he doesn't really believe in democracy, only when it's convenient. Now, of course, to be fair, I'm not going to pick on the Democrats because four years ago or not four years ago, a couple of years ago, there were a few other Republicans who wanted to primary against Donald Trump. And there RNC did the same thing. They didn't have any debates then either. So, you know, uh, Trump didn't have to stand for any debates. Now, the main reason that if you're going to run your incumbent president, the reason you don't want debates is because you don't want your guy getting hurt in the debates. You don't want him taking some shots. That would be very bad for Biden. I mean, Biden can barely survive the, the main debates, and they'll probably have maybe two or three debates, but they don't want to have them on the stage very long. But if Biden had to be up on stage with a bunch of debates, I mean, that would reduce his chances of, of winning as far as the DNC is concerned. Even if he wins the nomination, he'd be very wounded during these debates because people would be, you know, taking a lot of shots, deservedly so, probably from the left and the right. You'd have some progressive candidates that say you're not liberal enough. And then you'd have some moderates that you're, you're too liberal, right? So he'd be getting beat up from both sides. And, you know, that would potentially damage him in the uh, general election. So uh, they don't want that. The DNC doesn't want that. And so they, they want to stop the debate. But, of course, you know, they can still have debate. There's nothing that stops the other candidates from organizing and having a debate. The key is getting the media to cover it because, you know, they, they don't want to cover it. But they should. They should cover these debates. I mean, it, you know, they could have a, an empty podium, you know, where Biden is supposed to be and just make fun of it. You know, maybe they, they, they can put like a pumpkin up there and, you know, draw, draw his face on it. I don't know. They could, they could do something comical. And maybe it would even be worse for Biden if it looks like he's just too afraid uh, to show up at this debate. But, you know, I think maybe if the Republicans were smart, they'd try to sponsor the debates or they'd try to get, you know, some somebody... Uh, uh, to cover it. But um, at the end of the day, Biden is running for a second term. If he wins, he will again break his own record for being the oldest president uh, to be elected and to serve in office. Now, it's likely to be a rematch. It's going to be Biden versus Trump. You know, that's look that that's the way it looks like it's going to go down. So it's going to be a rematch of the 2020 election only i think that trump could win a lot of people maybe don't think that but the economy is going to be so bad in 2024 and biden is such a bad candidate that i think trump will be able to beat him in fact i think beating biden in 2024 may even be easier than it was for trump to beat hillary clinton in 2016. Anyway, what I want to wrap up this uh, podcast, though, talking about is Tucker Carlson out at Fox News. You know, two of the guys whose shows I was on the most, Don Bongino and now Tucker Carlson, are both gone from Fox. I used to do both their shows. 
Now, maybe that means Laura Ingram is next. Hopefully, she sticks around because she's the only person left on Fox News who has me on. Now, I go on Fox Business. I go on Liz Clayman's show. I go on Charles Payne's show. So that's another network. But Fox News, which has a, a bigger platform, there were three shows that I you know, that I go on. And now two of the hosts are gone. But by far, I think Tucker Carlson was not only the best host on Fox, he was the best host on any news network, cable or broadcast. He was by far the best. In fact, I talked a lot about his recent podcast about the dollar's reserve currency status. But more than that, I mean, he talk, called out all the hypocrisy uh, regarding uh, the, 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 the war in the Ukraine, uh, and, and and COVID, I mean, so many things. And when they were doing uh, the, the uh, George Floyd stuff, and I mean, so many things. He had the guts to come out and speak the truth. You know, when nobody else wanted to speak the truth, everybody else in the mainstream media wanted to be politically correct. They were kowtowing to all of that pressure. And Tucker had pressure because a lot of advertisers who would have advertised on his show, the number one show on cable news, not just the number one show on Fox, the number one show in all of cable, right? But some advertisers were afraid to advertise because they're worried that some left-wing nut is going to boycott them because Tucker Carlson is telling the truth. You know, when you're telling lies and there's someone out there telling the truth, you got to silence that person, right? You want to be able to tell your lies and have other people not call you out. Right? And he had a big soapbox to call out all these lies. And he had a lot of people, a lot of fans, myself included, who enjoyed watching his show because he was very unique. Now, of course, I'm like Tucker in that respect, but I'm just here on, you know, Peter Schiff's show. You know, I, I don't have a Fox News platform. I'm not the host of a, of, a, of a show like that. His audience is more than 10 times as big is my audience. And, you know, it's easy for me to speak the truth. I mean, I, I got to, you know, give it, uh, you know, a, a applause for Tucker. Because to speak the truth in that corporate environment, knowing what the consequences are, right? It, you know, I'm just, I'm my own, right? I mean, I can, I can speak my mind. And yeah, you know, maybe they ended up shutting down my bank. The media destroyed my bank because they didn't like what I said. But I, I can't get fired. Right. I mean, because I don't have a boss. Right. I'm just direct to my audience. I'm, I'm not dealing with a big corporate structure. Uh, but he was he was in that world. And even though he was with Fox, yes, Fox is Republican, but they're they're not libertarian Republican. They're, you know, mainstream George Bush, industrial military, industrial complex. They're not Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson pushed the envelope at Fox. Right. And there's that's the reason that he was so hated. I mean, you look at all the people that are celebrating and popping the champagne because Tucker Carlson was fired. Look at all of his enemies because his enemies, the people who were Tucker's enemies, those are the people that you want to be your enemies. When all those people are celebrating that you've been fired, Tucker was doing a good job. He was an important voice that needs to be heard. And it's a shame for Fox that they caved into the political pressure because you don't know why they fired him. Yeah, they got this big lawsuit uh, from Dominion that they settled the defamation lawsuit, but that's not, that wasn't Tucker's fault. Tucker didn't do that. 
Um, so I don't know what else was a catalyst, but I think the problem was they were worried about Tucker and the things that he says because of how honest he is at calling out the, the hypocrisy and the lies of the establishment, of which, you know, Fox is part of the establishment. Now, they're not nearly as bad as CNN or MSNBC or ABC, CBS, NBC, all those, but they weren't Tucker. Now, they allowed Tucker. To their credit, Fox allowed Tucker to speak his mind uh, for as many years as, as he did. But at some point, they must have decided that it was too much for them. But I think that this is going to end up being a loss for Fox News. It's not going to end up being a loss for Tucker Carlson because there is a big market out there for what Tucker Carlson is saying. You know, there, there, there are a lot of people. I mean, I tap into part of that market myself, so I know that it's out there. And I know that he can reach it. He doesn't need Fox News. Uh, he's got a big enough audience already. And Fox News certainly helped him cultivate that audience. I mean, I can imagine the size of the audience I would have if I had a multi-year run on Fox News. I mean, I think I could have a very successful program. Plus, he's got a whole bunch of writers and producers. I do it all myself. You know, I mean, so I just make it up. I don't have people writing scripts for me and stuff like that. But I'm sure if I was up there on that big a soapbox, I'd have a, a big audience too. Maybe not as big as Tucker's, I don't know. But he's got a great audience that he wouldn't have had. But he can take that audience, especially with the internet and social media. He doesn't need to sign a deal. I mean, there are other uh, broadcasts. He could do One American uh, News. He could do Newsmax. He could do something uh, with the Daily Wire. But I think that he should just go out on his own. I mean, I, you know, I mean, he could, I'd love to do something with Tucker, but Tucker don't need me. He doesn't need anybody. He can uh, do it all himself. And I look forward to being a guest on the Tucker Carlson show whenever he starts producing it. In the meantime, I think Fox is going to lose a lot of viewers. There are people that are pissed off, and rightly so. I mean, my mother, I didn't put her up to it. My mother, who's a big fan of Tucker Carlson, she tells me, I'm never watching Fox again. My wife doesn't want to watch Fox either. You know, it's like we can't turn on Fox News. My mom canceled her subscription uh, to um, uh, whatever. I I forget. what I I don't subscribe to it, but my mom subscribes uh, to some paid Fox Now or I forget what it's called. But she says, I'm canceling it. You know, and if my mother is doing that, I mean, I'm sure that lots of people's mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers are are having a similar reaction. They're just really upset. They feel like Fox sold them out by firing Tucker. And they want to show their support for Tucker Carlson by, um, you know, boycotting Fox. And, you know, a lot of people that tuned in to Tucker Carlson's show, eight to nine o'clock. Well, they, they watched nine to 10, right? They, they stuck around. So Tucker's show and his popularity benefited the shows that came later. Well, now they're not going to get the benefit of Tucker's audience, not turning the dial because Tucker's audience isn't going to be there. And there are a lot of other alternatives uh, to Fox news now and other ways that people can 
get Tucker. So all the people that are out there that are so happy that Tucker Carlson is off Fox News, be careful what you wish for, because he may even be more effective and speak even more freely. I mean, imagine the stuff that Tucker Carlson said when he was still under that Fox News umbrella. Imagine what Tucker Unleashed is going to say. I look forward to that, and I wish Tucker Carlson Godspeed in his new adventure in this next stage of his career, uh, which I think will be the best yet. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. And don't forget, immediately after this podcast, I'm doing the live Q&A at shiftradio.com slash premium. Bye for now.